Hello again, Justin Spencer here. One of the best parts about reading this book for the first time in quite a long time has been seeing things I simply hadn't noticed before. As a result of seeing those things, Jim Hawkins has quickly become a favorite fictional character of mine. What impresses me most about him and this story is the way he grows throughout. If you recall at the beginning of the story, young Jim is somewhat afraid of old Billy Bones and justifiably terrified of Blind Pew. But now, in this episode, he's so confident and courageous that he can laugh in the face of his own death. Because of the choices he has made to confront his fears and do what is right in spite of potentially fatal consequences, he grows to become extraordinarily brave. He shows us something that is true. Being brave is hard, and no one is born brave. People become brave because they choose to be brave. And every time a person makes the choice to be brave, they make it easier to make the same choice in the future. Welcome to the next episode of Storylight's production of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Chapter 25 I Strike the Jolly Roger I had scarce gained a position on the bowsprit, when the flying jib flapped and filled upon the attack with a report like a gun. The schooner trembled to her keel under the reverse, but the next moment the other sails still drawing, the jib flapped back again and hung idle. This had nearly tossed me off into the sea, and now I lost no time, crawled back along the bowsprit, and tumbled head foremost upon the deck. I was on the lee side of the forecastle, and the mainsail, which was still drawing, concealed me from a certain portion of the after-deck. Not a soul was to be seen. The planks, which had not been swabbed since the mutiny, bore the print of many feet, and an empty bottle, broken by the neck, tumbled to and fro like a live thing in the scuppers. Suddenly the Hispaniola came right into the wind. The jibs behind me cracked aloud, the rudder slammed too, the whole ship gave a sickening heave and shudder, and at the same moment the main boom swung inboard, the sheet groaning in the blocks, and showed me the lee aft deck. There were the two watchmen, sure enough, red cap on his back, as stiff as a handspike, with his arms stretched out like those of a crucifix, and his teeth showing through his open lips. Israel hands propped against the bulwarks, his chin on his chest, his hand lying open before him on the deck, his face as white under its tan as a tallow candle. For a while the ship kept bucking and sidling like a vicious horse, the sails filling now on one tack, now on another, and the boom swinging to and fro till the mast groaned aloud under the strain. Now and again, too, there would come a cloud of light sprays over the bulwark, and a heavy blow of the ship's bows against the swell. So much heavier weather was made of it by this great rigged ship than by my homemade lopsided coracle, now gone to the bottom of the sea. At every jump of the schooner, Redcap slipped to and fro, but what was ghastly to behold, neither his attitude nor his fixed teeth disclosing grin was any way disturbed by this rough usage. At every jump, too, Hans appeared still more to sink into himself and settle down upon the deck, his feet sliding ever farther out, and the whole body canting toward the stern, 
but that his face became, little by little, hid from me, and at last I could see nothing beyond his ear and the frayed ringlet of one whisker. At the same time I observed around both of them splashes of dark blood upon the planks, and began to feel sure that they had killed each other in their drunken wrath. While I was thus looking and wondering, in a calm moment when the ship was still, Israel Hands turned partly round and with a low moan writhed himself back to the position in which I had seen him first. The moan which told of pain and deadly weakness, and the way in which his jaw hung open, went right to my heart. But when I remembered the talk I had overheard from the apple barrel, all pity left me. I walked aft until I reached the mainmast. "'Come aboard, Mr. Hands,' I said ironically. He rolled his eyes round heavily, but he was far too gone to express surprise. All he could do was utter one word. "'Brandy!' It occurred to me that there was no time to lose, and, dodging the boom as it once more lurched across the deck, I slipped aft and down the companion stairs into the cabin. It was such a scene of confusion as you could hardly fancy— all the lockfast places had been broken open in quest for the chart. The floor was thick with mud, where ruffians had sat down to drink or consult after wading in the marshes around the camp. The bulkheads, all painted in clear white and beaded round with gilt, bore a pattern of dirty hands. Dozens of empty bottles clinked together in corners to the rolling of the ship. One of the doctor's medical books lay open upon the table, Half the leaves gutted out, I suppose, for pipe-lights. In the midst of all this, the lamp still cast a smoky glow, obscure and brown as umber. I went into the cellar. All the barrels were gone, and of the bottles a most surprising number had been drunken out and thrown away. Certainly, since the mutiny began, not a man of them could ever have been sober. Foraging about, I found a bottle with some brandy left, for hands, and for myself I routed out some biscuit, some pickled fruits, a great bunch of raisins, and a piece of cheese. With these I came on deck, put down my own stock behind the rudder head, and well out of the coxswain's reach, went forward to the water-breaker, and had a good deep drink of water, and then, and not till then, gave hands the brandy. He must have drunk a gill before he took the bottle from his mouth. Oi, said he. Boy, thunder, I wanted some of that. I had sat down already in my own corner and begun to eat. Much hurt, I asked him. He grunted, or rather I might say he barked. If that doctor was a bold, he said, I'd be right enough in a couple of turns, but I don't have no manner of luck, you see. And that's what the matter with me. As for that swab, he's good and dead, he is, he added, indicating the man with the red cap. He want no seaman anyhow, and where might you come from? Well, said I, I've come aboard to take possession of this ship, Mr. Hands, and you'll please regard me as your captain until further notice. He looked at me sourly enough, but said nothing. Some of the colour had come back into his cheeks, though he still looked very sick, and still continued to slip out and settle down as the ship banged about. "'By the by,' I continued, "'I can't have these colours, Mr. Hands, and by your leave I'll strike them, better none than these.' 
and again dodging the boom, I ran to the colour lines, handed down the cursed black flag, and chucked it overboard. God save the king, said I, waving my cap, and there's an end to Captain Silver. He watched me keenly and slyly, his chin all the while on his breast. I reckon, he said at last, I reckon, Captain Hawkins, you'll want to get ashore now. Suppose we talks. Why, yes, says I, with all my heart, Mr. Hands, say on. And I went back to my meal with a good appetite. This man, he began, nodding feebly at the corpse. O'Brien, what his name? A rank islander. This man and me got a canvas on her, meaning for a sailor back. Oh, well, he's dead now, he is. And dead at a bilge. And who's going to sail this ship? I don't see. Well, I gives you a hint. You ain't that man as far as I can tell. Now, look here. You gives me food and drink and an old scarf or an handkerchief to tie my wound up, you know. And I'll tell you how to sail her. And that's about a square all round, I take it. I'll tell you one thing, says I. I'm not going back to Captain Kidd's anchorage. I mean to get into the North Inlet and beach her quietly there. To be sure you did, he cried. Why, I ain't such an infernal lubber after all. I can see, can't I? I tried my fling, I have, and I lost. And it's you as the wind of me. From North Inlet? Why, well, I hadn't no choice, not I. I'd help you sail up to execution dock by thunder, so I would. Well, as it seemed to me, there was some sense in this. We struck our bargain on the spot. In three minutes I had the Hispaniola sailing easily before the wind along the coast of Treasure Island, with good hopes of turning the northern point ere noon, and beating down again as far as North Inlet before high water, when we might beach her safely, and wait till the subsiding tide permitted us to land. Then I lashed the tiller, and went below to my own chest, where I got a soft silk handkerchief of my mother's, with this, and with my aid, Hans bound up the great bleeding stab he had received in the thigh, and after he had eaten a little, and had a swallow or two more of brandy, he began to pick up visibly, sat straighter up, spoke louder and clearer, and looked in every way another man. The breeze served us admirably. We skimmed before it like a bird, the coast of the island flashing by and the view changing every minute. Soon we were past the high lands and blowing beside low, sandy country, sparsely dotted with dwarf pines, and soon we were beyond that again, and had turned the corner of the rocky hill that ends the island on the north. I was greatly elated with my new command, and pleased with the bright, sunshiny weather and these different prospects of the coast. I had now plenty of water and good things to eat, and my conscience, which had smitten me hard for my desertion, was quieted by the great conquest I had made. I should, I think, have had nothing left me to desire but for the eyes of the coxswain as they followed me derisively about the deck, and the odd smile that appeared continually on his face. It was a smile that had in it something both of pain and weakness, a haggard, old man's smile. But there was, beside that, a grain of derision, a shadow of treachery, in his expression as he craftily watched and watched and watched me at my work. Chapter 26
Israel Hands The wind, serving us to a desire, now hauled into the west. We could run so much the easier from the northeast of the island to the mouth of the north inlet. Only as we had no power to anchor, and dared not beach her till the tide had flowed a good deal farther, time hung on our hands. The coxswain told me how to lay the ship too. After a good many trials I succeeded, and we both sat in silence over another meal. Captain, said he at length, with the same uncomfortable smile, "'Here's my old shipmate O'Brien. "'Suppose you was to heave him overboard. "'I ain't particular as a rule, "'and I don't take no blame for settling his hash. "'But I don't reckon him ornamental now, do you?' "'I'm not strong enough, and I don't like the job. "'And there he lies for me,' said I. "'This here's an unlucky ship, this Hispaniola, Jim,' "'he went on, blinking.' There's a power of men been killed in this Hispaniola. A sight of poor seamen dead and gone since you and me took ship to Bristol. I never seen such dirty luck, not I. There was this here O'Brien now. He's dead, ain't he? Well now, I'm no scholar, and you're a lad as can read and figure. And to put it straight, do you take it as a dead man is dead for good? Or do we come alive again? You can kill the body, Mr. Hands, but not the spirit. You must know that already, I replied. O'Brien there is in another world and may be watching us. Ah, says he. Well, that's unfortunate. Appears as if killing parties was a waste of time. Howsomever, spirits don't reckon for much above what I've seen. Or chance with the spirits, Jim. Now you spoke up free, and I'll take it kind if you step down into that air cabin and get me a... Uh, well, shiver my timbers. I can't hit the name on it. Well, you get me a bottle of wine, Jim. This here brandy's too strong for my head. Now, the coxswain's hesitation seemed to be unnatural, and as for the notion of his preferring wine to brandy, I entirely disbelieved it. The whole story was a pretext. He wanted me to leave the deck... So much was plain, but with what purpose I could in no way imagine. His eyes never met mine. They kept wandering to and fro, up and down, now with a look to the sky, now with a flitting glance upon the dead O'Brien. All the time he kept smiling, and putting his tongue out in the most guilty, embarrassed manner, so that a child could have told he was bent on some deception. I was prompt with my answer, however... For I saw where my advantage lay, and that with a fellow so densely stupid I could easily conceal my suspicions to the end. Some wine? I said. Far better. Will you have white or red? Well, I reckon it's about the blessed same to me, shipmate, he replied. So it's strong. There's plenty of it. What's the odds? All right, I answered. I'll bring you port, Mr. Hands. "'but I'll have to dig for it.' "'With that, I scuttled down the companion with all the noise I could, "'slipped off my shoes, ran quietly along the sparred gallery, "'mounted the forecastle ladder, and popped my head out to the fore companion. "'I knew he would not expect to see me there, "'yet I took every precaution possible, "'and certainly the worst of my suspicions proved too true. "'He had risen from his position to his hands and knees.' and though his leg obviously hurt him pretty sharply when he moved, 
for I could hear him stifle a groan. Yet it was at a good rattling rate that he trailed himself across the deck. In half a minute he had reached the port scuppers and picked, out of a coil of rope, a long knife, or rather a short dirk, discoloured to the hilt with blood. He looked upon it for a moment, thrusting forth his underjaw, tried the point upon his hand, and then hastily concealing it in the bosom of his jacket, trundled back again into his old place against the bulwark. This was all that I required to know. Israel could move about. He was now armed, and if he had been at so much trouble to get rid of me, it was plain that I was meant to be the victim. What he would do afterwards, whether he would try to crawl right across the island from North Inlet to the camp among the swamps, or whether he would fire Long Tom, trusting that his own comrades might come first to help him, was, of course, more than I could say. Yet I felt sure that I could trust him in one point, since in that our interest jumped together, and that was in the disposition of the schooner. We both desired to have her stranded safe enough, in a sheltered place, and so that when the time came she could be got off again with as little labour and danger as might be, and until that was done I considered that my life would certainly be spared. While I was thus turning the business over in my mind, I had not been idle with my body. I had stolen back to the cabin, slipped once more into my shoes, and laid my hand at random on a bottle of wine, and now, with this for an excuse, I made my reappearance on the deck. Hands lay as I left him, all fallen together in a bundle, with his eyelids lowered, as though he were too weak to bear the light. He looked up, however, at my coming, knocked the neck off the bottle, like a man who had done the same thing often, and took a good swig, with his favourite toast of here's luck. Then he lay quiet for a little, and then pulling out a stick of tobacco, begged me to cut him a quid. Cut me a junk of that, says he, for I haven't no knife, and hardly strength enough, so be as I had. Ah, Jim, Jim, I reckon I miss days. Cut me a quid as like and be the last, lad. Rhyme for my long home, and no mistake. Well, said I, I'll cut you some tobacco. But if I was you and thought myself so badly, I would go to my prayers like a Christian man. Why? said he. Now you tell me why. Why? I cried. You were asking me just now about the dead. You've broken your trust. You've lived in lies and sin and blood. There's a man you killed lying at your feet this moment, and you ask me why. For God's mercy, Mr. Hans, that's why. I spoke with a little heat, thinking of the bloody dirk he had hidden in his pocket, and designed, in his ill thoughts, to end me with. He, for his part, took a great draught of wine and spoke with the most unusual solemnity. For thirty years, he said, I've sailed the seas, seen good and bad, better worse, fair weather and foul, provisions running out, knives going and what not. Well, now I tell you, I never seen good come a goodness yet. Him as strikes first is my fancy, dead men don't bite. Fence my views. Amen, so be it. And now you look here, he added, suddenly changing his tone. We've had about enough of this foolery. Ties make good enough by now. You should take my orders, Captain Hawkins, and we'll sell slap in and be done with it. 
All told, we had scarce two miles to run. The navigation was delicate. The entrance to this northern anchorage was not only narrow and shoal, but lay east and west, so that the schooner must be nicely handled to be got in. I think I was a good, prompt subaltern, but I am very sure that Hans was an excellent pilot, for we went about and about and dodged in, shaving the banks, with a certainty and a neatness that were a pleasure to behold. Scarcely had we passed the heads before the land closed around us. The shores of the north inlet were as thickly wooded as those of the southern anchorage, but the space was longer and narrower, and more like what in truth it was, the estuary of a river. Right before us at the southern end we saw the wreck of a ship in the last stages of dilapidation. It had been a great vessel of three masts, but had lain so long exposed to the injuries of the weather that it was hung about with great webs of dripping seaweed, and on the deck of it shore bushes had taken root, and now flourished thick with flowers. It was a sad sight, but it showed us that the anchorage was calm. Now, said Hans, look there. There's a pet bit for us to beat a ship in. Fine flat sand, never a cat's paw, trees all round it, and flowers are blowing like a garden out of that old ship. And once beached, I inquired, how shall we get her off again? Why so, he replied. You take a line ashore there on the other side at low water. Take a turn about one of them big pines, bring it back, take a turn round the capstan, and lie to for the tide. Come I water... All hands take a pull up on that line, and off she comes as sweet as nature. And now, boy, you stand by. We're near the pit now, and she's too much way on her. Starboard a little. So steady. Starboard, larboard a little. Steady. Steady. So he issued his commands, which I breathlessly obeyed, till all of a sudden he cried, Now, my hearty, luff! And I put the helm hard up and the Hispaniola swung round rapidly and ran stem-on for the low wooded shore. The excitement of Lee's last manoeuvres had somewhat interfered with the watch I had kept hitherto, sharply enough, upon the coxswain. Even then I was still so much interested waiting for the ship to touch that I had quite forgot the peril that hung over my head and stood craning over the starboard bulwarks and watching the ripples spreading wide before the bows. I might have fallen without a struggle for my life, had not a sudden disquietude seized upon me and made me turn my head. Perhaps I had heard a creak, or seen his shadow moving with the tail of my eye. Perhaps it was an instinct like a cat's. But sure enough, when I looked round, there was Hans, already halfway towards me, with the dirk in his right hand. We must both have cried out aloud when our eyes met, but while mine was with the shrill cry of terror, his was a roar of fury like a charging bull's. At the same instant he threw himself forward, and I leapt sideways toward the bows. As I did so, I left hold of the tiller, which sprang sharp to leeward, and I think this saved my life, for it struck hands across the chest and stopped him for the moment dead. Before he could recover, I was safe out of the corner where he had trapped me, with all the deck to dodge about. Just forward of the mainmast, I stopped, drew a pistol from my pocket, took a cool aim, though he had already turned, 
and was once more coming directly after me and drew the trigger. The hammer fell, but there followed neither flash nor sound. The priming was useless with seawater. I cursed myself for my neglect. Why had not I long before reprimed and reloaded my only weapons? Then I should not have been as now a mere fleeing sheep before this butcher. Wounded as he was, it was wonderful how fast he could move, his grizzled hair tumbling over his face, and his face itself as red as a red ensign with his haste and fury. I had no time to try my other pistol, nor indeed much inclination, for I was sure it would be useless. One thing I saw plainly. I must not simply retreat before him, or he would speedily hold me boxed into the bows, as a moment since he had so nearly boxed me in the stern. Once so caught, then nine or ten inches of the blood-stained dirk would be my last experience on this side of eternity. I placed my palms against the mainmast, which was of a goodish bigness, and waited every nerve upon the stretch. Seeing that I meant to dodge, he also paused, and a moment or two passed into feints on his part and corresponding movements upon mine. It was such a game as I have often played at home about the rocks of Black Hill Cove, but never before, you may be sure, with such a wildly beating heart as now. Still, as I say, it was a boy's game, and I thought I could hold my own at it, against an elderly seaman with a wounded thigh. Indeed, my courage had begun to rise so high that I allowed myself a few darting thoughts on what would be the end of this affair. And while I saw certainly that I could spin it out for long, I saw no hope of any ultimate escape. Well, while things stood thus, suddenly the Hispaniola struck, staggered, ground for an instant in the sand, and then swift as a blow, cantered over the port side, till the deck stood at an angle of forty-five degrees, and about a puncheon of water splashed into the scupper holes and lay in a pool between the deck and bulwark. We were both of us capsized in a second, and both of us rolled almost together into the scuppers, the dead red cap with his arms still spread out, tumbling stiffly after us. So near were we, indeed, that my head came up against the coxswain's foot with a crack that made my teeth rattle. Blow and all, I was the first afoot again, for hands had got involved with the dead body. The sudden canting of the ship had made the deck no place for running on, I had to find some new way of escape, and that upon the instant, for my foe was almost touching me. Quick as a thought, I sprang into the mizzen shrouds, rattled up hand over hand, and did not draw a breath till I was seated on the cross trees. I had been saved by being prompt. The dirk had struck not half a foot below me as I pursued my upward flight, and there stood Israel Hands with his mouth open and his face upturned to mine, a perfect statue of surprise and disappointment. Now that I had a moment to myself, I lost no time in changing the priming of my pistol, and then, having one ready for service, and to make assurance doubly sure, I proceeded to draw the load of the other, and recharge it afresh from the beginning. My new employment struck hands all of a heap. He began to see the dice going against him, and after an obvious hesitation, he also hauled himself heavily into the shrouds, and, with the dirk in his teeth, began slowly and painfully to mount 
It cost him no end of time and groans to haul his wounded leg behind him, and I had quietly finished my arrangements before he was much more than a third of the way up. Then, with a pistol in either hand, I addressed him. "'One more step, Mr. Hands,' said I, "'and I'll blow your brains out. Dead men don't bite, you know,' I added with a chuckle. He stopped instantly. I could see by the working of his face that he was trying to think, and the process was so slow and laborious that in my newfound security I laughed aloud. At last, with a swallow or two, he spoke, his face still wearing the same expression of extreme perplexity. In order to speak, he had to take the dagger from his mouth, but in all else he remained unmoved. "'Jim!' says he. I reckon we're fouled, you and me, and we'll have to sign articles. I'd have had you but for that little lurch, but I don't have no luck, not I. And I reckon I'll have to strike, which comes hard, you see, for a master mariner to a ship's yonker like you, Jim. I was drinking in his words and smiling away as conceited as a cock upon a wall. When... All in a breath, back went his right hand over his shoulder. Something sang like an arrow through the air. I felt a blow and then a sharp pang. And there I was, pinned by the shoulder to the mast. In the horrid pain and surprise of the moment, I scarce can say it was by my own volition, and I am sure it was without a conscious aim. Both my pistols went off. Both escaped out of my hands. They did not fall alone. With a choked cry, the coxswain loosed his grasp upon the shrouds and plunged headfirst into the water. Chapter 27 Pieces of Eight Owing to the cant of the vessel, the masts hung far out over the water, and from my perch on the cross-trees I had nothing below me but the surface of the bay. Hans, who was not so far up, was in consequence nearer to the ship, and fell between me and the bulwarks. He rose once to the surface in a lather of foam and blood, and then sank again for good. As the water settled, I could see him lying huddled together on the clean bright sand in the shadow of the vessel's sides. A fish or two whipped past his body. Sometimes, by the quivering of the water, he appeared to move a little as if he were trying to rise, but he was dead enough for all that, being both shot and drowned, and was food for fish in the very place where he had designed my slaughter. I was no sooner certain of this than I began to feel sick, faint, and terrified. The hot blood was running over my back and chest. The dirk where it had pinned my shoulder to the mast seemed to burn like a hot iron, it was not so much these real sufferings that distressed me, for these it seemed to me I could bear without a murmur. It was the horror I had upon my mind of falling from the cross-trees into that still green water beside the body of the coxswain. I clung with both hands till my nails ached, and I shut my eyes as if to cover up the peril. Gradually my mind came back again, my pulses quieted down to a more natural time, and I was once more in possession of myself. It was my first thought to pluck forth the dirk, but either it stuck too hard or my nerve failed me, and I desisted with a violent shudder. 
Oddly enough, that very shudder did the business. The knife, in fact, had come the nearest in the world to missing me altogether. It held me by a mere pinch of skin, and this the shudder tore away. The blood ran down the faster, to be sure, but I was my own master again, and only tacked to the mast by my coat and shirt. These last I broke through with a sudden jerk, and then regained the deck by the starboard shrouds. But nothing in the world would I have again ventured, shaken as I was, upon the overhanging port shrouds from which Israel had so lately fallen. I went below, and did what I could for my wound. It pained me a good deal, and still bled freely, but it was neither deep nor dangerous, nor did it greatly gall me when I used my arm. Then I looked around me, and as the ship was now, in a sense, my own, I began to think of clearing it from its last passenger, the dead man, O'Brien. He had pitched, as I have said, against the bulwarks, where he lay like some horrible, ungainly sort of puppet. Life-size, indeed, but how different from life's colour or life's comeliness. In that position I could easily have had my way with him, and as the habit of tragical adventures had worn off almost all of my terror for the dead, I took him by the waist as if he had been a sack of bran, and with one good heave tumbled him overboard. He went in with a sounding plunge. The red cap came off and remained floating on the surface, and as soon as the splash subsided I could see him and Israel lying side by side, both wavering with the tremulous movement of the water. O'Brien, though still quite a young man, was very bold. There he lay with that bald head across the knees of the man who had killed him, and the quick fishes staring to and fro over both. I was now alone upon the ship. The tide had just turned. The sun was within so few degrees of setting that already the shadow of the pines upon the western shore began to reach right across the anchorage and fall in patterns upon the deck. The evening breeze had sprung up, and though it was well warded off by the hill with the two peaks upon the east, the cordage had begun to sing a little softly to itself and the idle sails to rattle to and fro. I began to see a danger to the ship. The jibs I speedily doused and brought tumbling to the deck. The mainsail was a harder matter. Of course, when the schooner canted over, the boom had swung outboard, and the cap of it and a foot or two of sail hung even under water. I thought this made it still more dangerous, yet the strain was so heavy that I half feared to meddle. At last I got my knife and cut the halyards. The peak dropped instantly. A great belly of loose canvas floated broad upon the water, and since, pull as I liked, I could not budge the downhaul, this was the extent of what I could accomplish. For the rest, the Hispaniola must trust to luck, like myself. By this time the whole anchorage had fallen into shadow. The last rays, I remember, falling through a glade of the wood, and shining bright as jewels on the flowery mantle of the wreck. It began to chill. The tide was rapidly fleeting seaward, the schooner settling more and more on her beam ends. I scrambled forward and looked over. It seemed shallow enough, and holding the cut hawser in both hands for a last security, I let myself drop softly overboard. The water scarcely reached my waist. The sand was firm and covered with ripple marks, and I waded ashore in great spirits, 
leaving the Hispaniola on her side and her mainsail trailing wide upon the surface of the bay. About the same time the sun went fairly down and the breeze whistled low in the dusk among the tossing pines. At least, and at last, I was off the sea, nor had I returned thence empty-handed. There lay the schooner, clear at last from buccaneers and ready for our own men to board and get to sea again. I had nothing nearer my fancy than to get home to the stockade and boast of my achievements. Possibly I might be blamed a bit for my truantry, but the recapture of the Hispaniola was a clenching answer, and I hoped that even Captain Smollett would confess I had not lost my time. So thinking, and in famous spirits, I began to set my face homeward for the blockhouse and my companions. I remembered that most easterly of the rivers which drain into Captain Kidd's anchorage ran from the two-peaked hill upon my left, and I bent my course in that direction that I might pass the stream while it was small. The wood was pretty open, and keeping along the lower spurs, I had soon turned the corner of that hill, and not long after waded to the mid-calf across the watercourse. This brought me nearer to where I had encountered Ben Gunn, the maroon, and I walked more circumspectly, keeping an eye on every side. The dusk had come nigh hand completely, and as I opened out the cleft between the two peaks, I became aware of a wavering glow against the sky, where, as I judged, the man of the island was cooking his supper before a roaring fire. And yet I wondered, in my heart, that he should show himself so careless, for if I could see this radiance, might not it reach the eyes of Silver himself, where he camped upon the shore among the marshes? Gradually the night fell blacker. It was all I could do to guide myself even roughly towards my destination. The double hill behind me and the spyglass on my right had loomed faint and fainter. The stars were a few and pale, and in the low ground where I wandered I kept tripping among bushes and rolling into sandy pits. Suddenly a kind of brightness fell about me. I looked up. A pale glimmer of moonbeams had alighted on the summit of the spyglass, and soon after I saw something broad and silvery moving low down behind the trees, and knew the moon had risen. With this to help me, I passed rapidly over what remained to me of my journey, and sometimes walking, sometimes running, impatiently drew near to the stockade. Yet, as I began to thread the grove that lies before it, I was not so thoughtless but that I slacked my pace and went a trifle warily. It would have been a poor end of my adventures to get shot down by my own party in mistake. The moon was climbing higher and higher. Its light began to fall here and there in masses through the more open districts of the wood, and right in front of me a glow of a different colour appeared among the trees. It was red and hot, and now and again it was a little darkened, as it were the embers of a bonfire smouldering. For the life of me I could not think what it might be. At last I came right down upon the borders of the clearing. The western end was already steeped in moonshine. The rest, and the blockhouse itself, still lay in a black shadow, checkered with long silvery streaks of light. On the other side of the house an immense fire had burned itself into clear embers and shed a steady red reverberation, 
contrasted strongly with the mellow paleness of the moon. There was not a soul stirring, nor a sound beside the noises of the breeze. I stopped, with much wonder in my heart, and perhaps a little terror also. It had not been our way to build great fires. We were, indeed, by the captain's orders, somewhat stingy of firewood, and I began to fear that something had gone wrong while I was absent. I stole round to the eastern end, keeping close in shadow, and at a convenient place where the darkness was thickest crossed the palisade. To make assurance surer, I got upon my hands and knees, and crawled without a sound towards the corner of the house. As I drew nearer, my heart was suddenly and greatly lightened. It is not a pleasant noise in itself, and I have often complained of it at other times, but just then it was like music to hear my friends snoring together so loud and peaceful in their sleep. The sea cry of the watch, that beautiful all's well, never fell more reassuringly on my ear. In the meantime there was no doubt of one thing. They kept an infamous bad watch. If it had been Silver and his lads that were now creeping in on them, not a soul would have seen daybreak. That was what it was, thought I, to have seen the captain wounded, and again I blamed myself sharply for leaving them in that danger was so few to mount guard. By this time I had got to the door and stood up. All was dark within, so that I could distinguish nothing by the eye. As for sounds, there was the steady drone of the snorers, and a small occasional noise of flickering or pecking that I could in no way account for. With my arms before me, I walked steadily in. I should lie down in my own place, I thought, with a silent chuckle, and enjoy their faces when they found me in the morning. My foot struck something yielding. It was a sleeper's leg, and he turned and groaned, but without awakening. And then, all of a sudden, a shrill voice broke forth out of the darkness. Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! and so forth, without a pause or change like the clacking of a tiny mill. Silver's green parrot, Captain Flint. It was she whom I had heard pecking at a piece of bark. It was she, keeping better watch than any human being, who thus announced my arrival with her wearisome refrain. I had no time left to me to recover. At the sharp, clipping tone of the parrot, the sleepers awoke and sprang up, and with a mighty oath the voice of Silver cried, "'Who goes?' I turned to run, struck violently against one person, recoiled and ran full into the arms of a second, who, for his part, closed upon and held me tight. "'Bring a torch, Dick,' said Silver, when my capture was thus assured, and one of the men left the log-house and presently returned with a lightened brand." Thank you again for listening to this episode of Storylight. We would be really grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. We'd love to share these little bright lights of stories with everyone. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. 
I'll see you next time.